welcome to the All Bring Our All edition of Something Different This Way Comes. I'm Heather McLeod. This week's edition is about building bridges from could to should. It's about avoiding tripping hazards like binary thinking and its wrecking ball results. It's about finding the courage to call together community so we all give our all. It's inspired by good science true history of scientists daring to gather data to support good recommendations and persisting. There's a lot to do with persistence in today's episode. I'm a little impatient. I need stories to help me stick to things and gain the persistence that most things need. Something different, this way comes something Something different, something different Something different, this way comes something Something different, something different COVID caught up with me this week. Last week, actually. I tested positive the Friday before I recorded the last episode, and and I kind of figured not a lot of symptoms. I'll be over this before you know it. But here we are a week later, and I'm not over it. So I've been waffling between doing too much and getting sicker and uh, figuring out how to do less, which I'm not good at. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad. Because less gets done. And when I'm not busy running around doing things... My worries can catch up with me. And I'm really worried about there not being enough getting done, not enough change happening fast enough. I'm worried about how important it is that we adapt to what we know is going down and how hard it is to make change happen. Some of the science that I dug into this week and I want to tell you all about really looks at the more successful we are, the more comfortable we are, the more we feel we've done good by the world, the harder it is for us to leverage all of that opportunity, all that wealth, all that capacity to take on risk and actually risk change. It's almost counterintuitive, but the science backs it up. So there are tips to avoid tripping hazards. They call it binary thinking versus tightrope or embrace the paradox. And uh, it's really got me thinking. So I'm going to tell you more about that. I also, though, need to talk a bit about what we are changing and why. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. One of the documentaries I watched this week called Gather had an amazing line by one of the young activists being profiled. He said, The industrial age is ending. This is the beginning of the age of restoration. Wow. That resonated for me. In the song Scarborough Fair, 
is very colonial to me. Distance and power imbalanced. Frustrating. But it also has in it a little a little seed of wisdom. That's why it's been on my head so much. At least somebody told me once that, that those four herbs, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme, when, when taken together as a tisane, are powerful healing when you have a cold or, or a sore throat or a flu. So I have been adding those four herbs and thinking that song every time I do so to my tea all week long. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one who lives there. She once was a true love of mine. So what have we got here? We've got... Somebody who once was in Scarborough, but now is far away telling somebody else, about whom we know nothing except they are traveling to Scarborough, to seek out their past lover while there. What is that all about? That distance, right? And then every verse is a setting out of a challenge. Tell her to find me an acre of land. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Between the salt water and the sea strands, then she'll be a true love of mine. All right, let's start off with Mission Impossible. How can there be land between sea and salt water? Right? Later, it's a cambric shirt without needlework nor seams. A cambric shirt, by the way, I had to Google this, is a really fine shirt made out of cotton or linen, but teeny tiny threads woven closely together and treated so it's glossy and bright and a real garment for high society. And this woman is being asked to make it without wielding a needle, without cutting and sewing a seam. Impossible. The whole idea is that this love is unwinnable, the love of this distant past lover. How sad is that? How colonial is that, right? The going, the presuming, the setting impossible tasks to win favor. Man. It reminds me of the climate challenge, the climate crisis, because I feel like we're being presented with the solution as if it's, as if it's unfeasible. It's getting framed as if if it had to be done from afar, handed off to us by somebody else. And the more you listen to what needs to be accomplished, the less you think it's even possible. Which is not fair. And it's not true. It's not helpful. It's spin. And it speaks to our hearts. It's trying to to tug on emotions to, to get us twirling. It's not rational. So let's talk about that binary thinking that I've, I've referenced a few times. Now, I got that by listening to the podcast Hidden Brain, a recent episode called In the Face of Contradiction, which featured the psychiatrist uh, Wendy Smith. She recently put out a book called Both and Thinking. Her specialty, actually, is not just talking to people and helping them figure out how better to manage their challenges, but also working with businesses and looking at the history of businesses to understand what went wrong, what went right. And so an example of binary thinking, 
that she gives is the Polaroid Company. The Polaroid Company achieved enormous profitability and success. They developed something nobody else had, a film that would develop shortly after the picture was shot, so you'd have the satisfaction of seeing that picture just after it was taken. But they also developed a business model that was new and proved very successful for them. They call it the razor and blade model, in that instead of making a camera be something very expensive and precious you could only buy through a specialty shop, their camera they made super cheap and accessible, available everywhere. Where they made their money was the film. 72% markup on that film made them very rich. And they invested a lot of that money into research and development, not just into, you know, being rich. So that when digital photography and and digital images started changing their corner of the market, they were among the first to pay attention and invest in figuring it out. But they couldn't let go of what had made them rich. The 72% profit margin of that film They didn't want to settle for something with a 24% profit margin. They couldn't imagine building success without having that razor and blade structure to how they did business. And that blind spot led to their downfall. Another example of this that she didn't mention, but I know I have heard referenced in other business training sessions, is about trains and cars. So at the end of the 19th century, trains dominated our economy. Who could get the land on which to build the trains? How would those trains connect? What would be carried on them? It dominated our economy. It was so powerful. And the train barons who were able to finance and then profit by that transformation of our landscape and economy were really rich, had so many resources, so much staff, so much wisdom at their fingertips. And then the car came along. And they were approached by people who wanted to develop this new technology as experts in transport and said, you want to come on board? You want to help us out? And they said, no, I'm in the train business. Cars are just competition. I'm going to stick with what I know. And, well, we know what happened, right? Transportation was transformed and trains lost their dominance. And a lot of what seemed unshakable empires were broken. So where are we at right now? We're at a transformation of energy. Green energy is now cheaper, certainly more sustainable, and the way to go for the future. And we do have a lot of energy companies that are investing, but they're not whole heart leaping into. They're still acting more like it's a competitor than their future. And I can't fix that. Well, I can do my part to help shape and inspire and support that transformation, but I can't do it all by myself. I, I, don't, I don't own those means of production. But there's other things that we know need to change. And the sooner we change, the more completely we change them, the better off we will all be. Okay, maybe. There will be a few burdened with great wealth. And I do think great wealth is more of a burden than a blessing. I do. I know. I'm crazy. I'm a financial planner. But it is honestly. There would be some who lose some of the advantages which they feel hard won and, and they'll miss them. Absolutely. But you and I, most of us, will gain much, much more than we lose in this transformation. So how do we help make it happen? I have some thoughts. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one who lives there. 
She once was a true love of mine. How patronizing as well, that song. That there's nothing a woman would want more than the love of this bossy, sets impossible tasks, former lover. So one of the other things that really got me thinking this week is is the documentary Picture a Scientist. I found it on Netflix. Amazing stuff in there. But I'm going to focus on two stories. First, the biologist Nancy Hopkins at MIT. So she, against all odds, and the whole film is about those odds and what makes them long, uh, rose up to becoming a tenured professor in biology. And she had a project she wanted to do, and her lab was not big enough. So she went to the provost, who decides who gets how much space, and said, hey, I need more space. And he said, oh, sorry, can't help you. And she said, but people that have let, don't have tenure, people that are just starting out, they have more space than I have. Why can't I get the space I need to do my work? And he just kind of blocked his ears and went, la, 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 you're, you're talking nonsense. There's no truth to what you say, which she's a scientist. Kind of got her peeved, but not confident enough to do anything overtly. Instead, in the dark of night, she would sneak around the labs at MIT with a tape measure to get precise data on who has how much of the floor space until she had a a very clear math, very solid data. And she brought that to the provost and said, look, I've done the work. I can prove my statement. And he refused to look at it. That was frustrating. But she decided to go above him because her data was so strong and her need was so great. She couldn't do the work she was there to do without more space. So she wrote a letter uh, to preface her data. And then she invited out another woman who had tenure at MIT to read over the letter before she submitted it. And she was really nervous when she asked her to read it over, thinking, you know, how will I be criticized by this presumption of mine? in making this ask, and also gathering this data somewhat secretly. But instead, the other scientist read the letter and said, can I please sign? And can we share this with other women that probably can see the same pattern in their departments at this university? And they gathered a community with almost no time of people who hadn't sat down together, but when they did, were able to find all these parallels in their experience and their frustrations and also all this support as they tried to remain strong in the face of systemic chauvinism. So they finally all signed a letter that was presented to the president and began to create enormous change. The other story I want to talk to or highlight from this lovely documentary is about a geologist, Jane Willenbury. And she on her path towards becoming a tenured professor, had a a very memorable and horrific experience in the field with a bully. He was the boss. He was not the only person. It was her, the bully, his brother, and one other male student. She was the only woman on this field trip, and it was terrible bullying. When she came back, though, she she didn't have the courage or the strength or even could see the, the way in which to do anything about it. So she just let it sit there and pursued her passion, gained success, gained tenure track. And then one day her young daughter said to her, I want to be a scientist just like you, Mom. And it all caught up with her. She burst into tears. All she could think of was all the hurt, 
all the ways it had cost her so dearly to be one of a few in a chauvinistic field that didn't even acknowledge its chauvinism or see it. It was blind to its own limitations and unfairness. And so she decided to dig up all of her data, all of her notes, all of her evidence, approach the other students who had witnessed it as well and ask them to add their data, their notes, their recollections to a letter that she put to the university saying, this happened and it was not right. And this bully is still out there bullying other women. Something needs to be done. He can't do this anymore. It's not right. And her request, her complaint, didn't go very far. They came back and they said, oh, well, you know what? Let's give him a paid vacation for a while and then he can go back to business as usual. And she was heartbroken. Which, I mean, good honor for the courage. But it is sometimes the way brave, good things turn out. People don't want to hear what needs to be heard. And so they mitigate their response. And it's heartbreaking. But here's an interesting twist. The president of that college looked over that decision and overrode it and said, nope, the evidence is solid. The reasoning is clear. This guy's got to go. He's got to be held accountable for this very solidly documented crime, really. And, and that's what happened. What's really interesting is the guy who by then was president of that university had been the provo who turned down Nancy Hopkins the first two times she went walking in saying, I need more space. He had obviously learned a few things through her courage and persistence. It had shaped not just her reality, but other people's understanding too. And another really, really affecting part of that film is when the other student is talking to Jane Willibury about what it felt like for him to write down what he'd witnessed and to support her complaint. And he just keeps telling her, you know, you seemed fine, and so I, I didn't really think it had bothered you. And then he said, it made me think of a conference I was at once where an older, senior, very respected scientist was hitting on every woman scientist in the room, and they were all so great about just laughing and, you know, saying no. And she turned on him gently and said, can you imagine who is no longer in that room with you? Because if they had been propositioned by that senior person of influence and had dared to say how wrong that was, they would have been so challenged for being that courageous that probably they would have had their career ruined. And then think about all of those women who said no in that public space being approached by another scientist whom they respect that they would love to have a chance to talk science with who says, let's go over here to this bar. I want to talk science with you. And they do. And when they sit down, instead of talking science, the guy propositions them. And they say no. But they have been seen in a bar with this guy. And later on, as they gain success pursuing their passion in their field of expertise and their science, that success is tainted by the people who say, oh, you know, I saw her in a bar with that dude. She probably slept her way to success. And even if not everybody believes, the fact that they're even talking about it, and enough people will give it a little bit of credence because they don't know one way or the other, the burden of that is the kind of thing that is really hard to fix one act of courage at a time. It doesn't fit into a beautiful Hollywood narrative arc. It takes persistence. Courage. 
And I think back to a lot of things that were familiar and I now see as totally unacceptably wrong, but that I lived with as a young woman growing up. And even now, there's battles I just can't always tackle. So this gets me back to wanting those binary solutions. In that episode of Hidden Brain, when Wendy Smith is talking about what good looks like, you know, Polaroid didn't do good. It kind of did a list of pros and cons and then was unwilling to switch 100% to something new. And she said good solutions rarely are a pro and a con or a full-on switch. They're more like walking a tightrope or living within a Venn diagram. So an example of walking a tightrope she gave would be every 4th of July, her family has a really important gathering. And every 4th of July, there's a conference that's really important to her professionally. So she walks the tightrope. Walking a tightrope is not an act of perfect balance. It's an act of constant adjustment. Is your weight on the left or the right, the left or the right? And so every year she approaches the decision of what to do on the 4th of July with an open heart, but also with a certain commitment to herself, which is more important. Does she want to end up going to the conference more often or being with her family more often and how much more often and and keeping track of kind of how it's fallen out so far? So some years it makes sense to go to the conference and her family manages without her. In other years it makes sense to stick with her family. The conference manages without her. That is what good looks like, a constant adjustment and a willingness to not be with perfect, be with good enough for now. The Venn diagram solution is daring to open your heart to both answers, two very different answers being good answers, and then looking to see where both answers overlap the most for you. So you can decide to be, for example, not entirely green and not entirely as you were before, but find a place where the two overlap that works for you and keep revisiting that space. Have an intention to gradually move away and towards, away from what's not as good as you now know it could be, and towards what is better as you see opportunities to accomplish it. That sort of overlapping Venn diagram, living with paradox, that is a solution. Tell her to make me a cambric shirt. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme Without no seams, no needlework Then she'll be the true love of mine Impossible tasks For uncertain to be even wished for Promised rewards So another part of Picture a Scientist that really struck me was the presentation by the neuroscientist who created Project Implicit about not just how it works, but how doing it herself impacted her. So Project Implicit, I'll I'll put the link on the website, www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca, so you can try it yourself. But it's a tool to test your bias by making you categorize words that flash in front of the screen. So they'll switch around what categorizing things to the left mean 
and what categorizing things to the right mean. And then what they're really looking at is how quickly you can decide which category something falls in. And the classic one that she talks about is when she set it up, so it was girls' and boys' names, and then career nouns and home nouns. And when the girls and the home were together and the boys and the career were together, how quickly could you categorize those words? And then when you put girl with career and boy with home, were you as quick? So the first time she did this herself, as a person who designed it, as a woman scientist who has spent her whole life addressing and thinking about bias, she couldn't be better trained in overcoming bias. It's just not possible. She couldn't be better. And yet, she was biased. It was clear in the data. And that was humbling, but also empowering. Because if we need help, if we have to know that we're not actually fair in our perception of people, that we do put a gender lens on things, a racist lens on things. We do weigh accents or skin color or familiarity more than we want to consciously, more than we think we know we should consciously. Then that gives us permission to give ourselves the tools to mitigate that and also to notice it and address it. If we pretend it can't be, if we treat it as if it's some sort of a failing, we can't fix it. So that made me think of another great documentary called This Changes Everything, which was looking at scientists who'd managed to get the funding and and be able to prove the impact and the fact of chauvinistic depictions within our popular media. And changing it up so that we had a more realistic, more representative of the people watching faces and figures and kinds of people in front of the camera, how that impacted the people watching and absorbing all of that entertainment profoundly. So there you go. You've got the facts and you've got the recipe and and we can make change. And I feel like I've seen some of the impact of that research in what I find in some sources of media, but it's certainly not informing the algorithms that are shaping what comes up on my kids' YouTube feed. What comes up when I try to open a web browser and all of these feeds pop up that are skewed? They're they're certainly not being shaped and curated and edited the way the news might now be or kids' morning TV programs on some paid program like Treehouse. So knowing what good looks like and then finding a solution, mm, not so easy as you might think. Face forward and forgive Gather in and let us live Healthy, wealthy, safe and sound Greening earth we gather round So I've been having a dream lately, like a A dream like the Martin Luther King sort of a dream. And I'm going to share them with you briefly, but then I'll tell you why I'm not totally married to them. I think they're just beginnings of ideas. There might be seeds or nothing. And the first idea is the idea of a summer of surveys, of gathering people together and hiring them to go door to door for a summer and start with questions to help understand what people live, what they think of as their neighborhood, 
where they would like to have more. And part of my thinking here is inspired by being a teenager in Toronto. We moved to Toronto when I was 11 to a house that we could only afford because when my mom went in to check it out, the owner knew her. She had worked at the Jewish hospital as a university student a couple decades earlier and made friends with his mom. And he remembered how important that friendship was to his mom. And he really already liked mom because of that shared memory, that shared connection, that shared relationship. The only reason he was selling that house, too, was because, well, he worked for a company that had bought the neighborhood, torn down the houses there to replace them with big apartment buildings, and then decided on that particular block that they would just not be building an apartment building after all. So they sold the houses back to the people who worked for them. And he bought that and totally cleaned it down to the studs, put a new roof, new insulation, new wiring, new plumbing, everything beautiful, and gave it as a gift to his daughter, who refused it because it wasn't within walking distance of a synagogue. And she wanted to raise her family to be more devout than he had raised her to be. So he was having to sell it, but not wanting to sell it to just anyone. And so when mom walked in the door, he said, what is your budget to buy a house? And sold it for what we could afford, which is how we made it back into the middle class, by the way. We'd kind of fallen out of it. No, no, we'd definitely fallen out of it. Mainly due to my parents' commitment to their ideals over their commitment to money as such. But considering how much the value of homes have grown since then, that was a, a huge boon to us, a huge boon to our family. But the other thing that happened, we moved to that neighborhood when a lot of Toronto around there was empty, underused, and it really suffered for that emptiness. We were downwind from the slaughterhouses at the Dundas Junction. That neighborhood was full of half-empty warehouses, a lot of cement, um, a lot of empty spaces, buses that ran rarely. And those who did have apartments there, the apartments were often not in good repair, so were the houses. Yeah, there was a lot of empty spaces, and those spaces since that time have been filled in. In fact, my brother lives in the junction. Where his condo is, I remember being an empty space when I was a teenager. And the park behind his condo, I don't even remember ever noticing. But now, when I go to visit him, it is so well used. There's a ping pong table and tennis courts and a taekwondo group that meets there and a mummy's yoga group that meets there and snowman building contests and a fire pit. It's always full of, of ways that people gather and build community. And that's been a huge change. When I was a teenager in the 80s in Toronto, there were a lot of, you know, underloved and dirty and somewhat dangerous parquets tucked into corners. And somewhere along the way, after I left... As houses were raised and divided into apartments and, and new buildings were squeezed into spaces that had not had anything previously, the density of those neighborhoods got deeper. And there was a revolution of families who decided to clean up and renovate and put their own penny forward without getting permission from the city to spruce up and start actively using those little parquets. And now as you go around the neighborhoods of Toronto, different parkettes and parks are used so differently. I know in urban planning, a park isn't always a boon. It isn't always a neighborhood builder. And sometimes it can be a wall. 
if, if it's nobody's using it, if it becomes an empty space full of shadows, it can become a, a, a discouragement, a bit of a drain on a neighborhood. But an actively used park is such a community builder. And if I look around Thunder Bay, I see a lot more underused than actively used parks. I see some ways where some are used beautifully, and it's so inspiring. But I also see a lot of space. Like the Toronto I grew up in, which I now think back of as having all these spaces that have since been filled, and all these neighborhoods that have grown so much more dense and, and populated, they were already way more densely used than most of Thunder Bay. So here we have such an opportunity to bring in more people. But the question is how best to do that. And how best to do that's got to start at the level of the people who already know the space. I think of Betty Karpik and the Being Ancestors, the final episode of last season. She was so eloquent in talking about the insight and the opportunities to be found if you get outside your door, talk to people, notice things, spend time in the spaces you can walk to. So it all gave me this great dream. What if we in Thunder Bay hired people who would spend the summer going door to door, getting to know people, finding out what they think, what they notice, pooling that information, finding commonalities, coming up with suggestions, bringing them back, running those by people again, maybe organizing events where people can walk around together and share ideas or notice things together, maybe events where they can get to know each other a bit better, start to brainstorm ways to use their common spaces in a way that would work for them so that each neighbor could tailor both how it uses more what it has and also what it chooses to bring in. Some of the ways that we can address our housing crisis would be splitting up buildings so that there's more than one family in them, adding infill, putting in more buildings where there aren't currently buildings, bringing in commerce, having there be commercial activities in areas that don't currently have them. And the best way to do that is to really make sure that it's something that works for that neighborhood, that the neighbors support, that they might have even dreamed up themselves. So my dream also had was inspired by, there was recently this call for proposals for a $10,000 grant. Anything you think will build community in Thunder Bay, give us your idea. We might give you $10,000 to make it happen. Doesn't matter if it doesn't work. We want you to try. Tell us why you're the person with the great idea. So I thought, okay, put a purse at the end of this. I know in Chicago and Detroit, in a lot of cities in the United States that have lost their wealthiest members and now are rebuilding with uh, the ones who decided to stay, there's been amazing progress done when neighborhoods call anybody and everybody to join in the conversation about where to spend what money they have. You know, do we prioritize replacing the, you know, the water lines with their pinhole issues over replacing the roads? Or is lighting most important or sidewalks? Is cleaning up the park or a new playground? What in this neighborhood should we do first and why? And let people talk about it and get behind what they agree would be the best decision and, and help them inform the allocation of resources at the neighborhood level. There's been enormous success in that. And so I have this dream of us doing that in Thunder Bay. I know even one person can make a huge difference if they raise their idea loudly enough, work hard enough to get heard. But generally, it can be really hard to even know where to bring your ideas and what other people are thinking currently. So there's room for improvement. That was my that was my one one of my dreams for Thunder Bay. Judge and be judged, my friend. But 
perfect can't be the end got to expect to err learn and improve and be fair get closer to where we can all bring our own because we had a part two too to my dream I have it still I mean I think there might be some some smart to it but the idea of, of putting together a council you know we bring in advisors I know last week he says you'll go edition he referenced when the city of Thunder Bay paid a lot of money to bring in a guy who talked about strong neighborhoods I think it was called strong neighborhoods so we're willing sometimes to spend money uh, and also secure funding from other places to bring in people that have a certain level of expertise so my thought was, what if we put a little money together to have an advisory council? I mean, we have city council that are supposed to represent us, and they have regional representation and at-large representation and a leadership mayoral voice. And, and their job is to direct and oversee the work of all of our staff that do stuff. But we also have experts that might not want to be counselors, but they might have some really good intelligence to add to conversations. For instance, I think, a love local council that looked at how to make sustainable local food production and address our housing crisis where there's not enough housing and there's a lot of housing that needs love. How do we solve these problems? And a third one, which is our youth crisis. How do we engage and support our youth? So what if we had a council and we had... You know, the farmers of Sleepy G and Blues Farms who have such expertise right here in Thunder Bay on how to uh, do restorative agriculture. Thunder Oak Cheese and, and Slate River Dairy, local milk production, they have expertise. The Dew Drop In, the RFDA, Grace Place, Roots to Harvest. Not only do they know how to feed people, because one of the big issues with eating local is not everybody can cook, not everybody can store food. So how do we feed more people respectfully, you know, effectively, nutritiously? And they also have expertise in how to engage people, how to get people working who have obstacles between them and a cookie cutter job. I mean, when people work with volunteers, they really know how to accommodate, get the most out of the people that are willing to help. How can we tap into that expertise? We have college here. We have a university. There's all kinds of academic expertise talking about, well, how do we build things and, and solutions for a place where the growing happens for four months of the year, the eating happens for 12. So how do we set food by on a sufficient scale that it, that it works for the whole city? If we grow lots more food, and in uh, episode four of the first season, when we talked to um, Brendan Grant, of Sleepy G Farm, he'd done the math. He's like, it'd be 500 people work, maybe a few acres. It's very feasible to feed everybody in Thunder Bay based on food that we grow here locally. Erin of Roots to Harvest in the second episode of the first season, she said the same thing. The question is, what do we do with the food? Like, A, how do we serve it so none is wasted, so it's all well used and it's nutritious and people can access it? But also, how do we store it? We probably need to build a cellaring facility, somewhere that keeps potatoes and apples and carrots and parsnips for months and months and months past the day they were harvested. We also might need freezing and dehydrating and refrigeration capacity for us as a community 
to really make sustainable the harvest that we gather a couple weeks of the year. So we're eating that produce all year round. Egg grading. We need to have a way to uh, harvest uh, chickens locally in Turkey. We don't have that, but we could get it if we decide. And a team of experts to kind of shortcut and inform the figuring out what good looks like could bring so much value, especially if the city was able to help pay for their time so that more people could access that expertise more easily. And also the, the youth. The underground gym, the Boys and Girls Club, the Multicultural Center, they have such insight into what good looks like, how you can effectively build spaces and support them so that youth get the community support that they need and the opportunities that let them flourish. So these are my ideas. But then I thought, if someone were to knock on my door and ask me to fill out that survey, what my neighborhood needs, ask me to join in on that gathering, go on that walk, I would be resistant. I would be more likely to worry and criticize than to be 100% behind it, adding my skills and time and ideas to the mix. Imposed solutions have a real challenge. But how do you create the circumstance for more shared solutions, for more collaborative problem solving. I don't know. Not easy. Try and be tried, my friend. Daring that fails is not the end. Trust yourself and you'll lead with your heart on your sleeve. Solutions conceived when we all bring our all because we care. My brain gets all buzzy with ideas. And then I realize I need a hive. I need a hive. You know, a honeybee hive is not top-down organization. It is the most democratic of democracies. Each bee is listened to. Each bee has influence. All those women workers, how does a hive make a decision? They all put their heads together, they compare notes, and they make the decision together. And that decision might be to kill the queen. It might be to raise new queens. It might be to leave the the hive and, and go and find their fortune somewhere else. And it might be to kick out all the drones. It's time. They're not needed through the winter. And it might be to start raising the big fat bees that live longer and can make us through a long winter of trying to stay warm and live off the food we've set aside. That's how a hive works. So how do I gather my hive? How do I invest in all the possibilities and don't set us up for a yes or no? Here's my idea. Are you in or you out? I don't want to be there. I want to be sowing the seeds of paradox, of tightropes, of gradual transition, of maximum engagement. I want to invest in all the possibilities I haven't and may never imagine on my own. I want to engage all the people I don't know and might never know if I don't make the first move. Trusting and trusted we fly Together we'll ride to the sky Gathering a 
and share the call forgive our sins one and all together start small when we all bring our all because we together start small and takes persistence. I'm going to go back to picture a scientist and Nancy Hopkins, the biologist. One of the later scenes in the documentary, she says, you know, I, I dared to do my measurements and build up my data. And then I lucked into this wonderful community and we found some success with persistence. But after that, this became a part-time job. I didn't think I was in for it, but I did keep track of every conversation I got called in to join, every committee I kept minutes for, every decision I was asked to voice in on, every proposal I was asked to support in this new role as somebody who had gathered the data to prove that change was needed and then pursued that change until it started to happen. 15 years until I retired. I figure I spent about 20 hours a week. That was not what I got into science for. And yet it was a great part of her legacy. 15 years, 20 hours a week. Oy, I just get tired thinking how long this might take. But then I took a break before going from planning this podcast to, to assembling my little recording studio on the boys' bunk bed. I went outside for a break. It was beautiful. It was sunny this Saturday. And I walked up beside the house. There's a hill. It's not very steep at all. But from it, you can see the sleeping giant and the bay. And today I could see, I mean, I couldn't see them all in one gaze. I had to keep moving my eyes. But there were probably about a dozen eagles and ravens and crows riding the updrafts, just soaring in the sky in great circles high, high. Whenever I look at the sleeping giant now, I think of the one and only time I have climbed to the top of it. We did it as a family uh, on a May when um, we walk in support of raising money for the Alzheimer's Society every May, the IG Walk for Alzheimer's. And I needed at least 20,000 more steps to complete it. So we decided to walk and hike up the sleeping giant. And actually, my Fitbit died before we got back down again, so I, I'm not totally positive I got more than 20,000 steps. I would guess it was at least 22,000 steps. All I know for sure was that it was a lot farther than I thought it would be. It was a lot farther. By the time I got to the top, there was part of me that was just terrified at how long it would take to get back to the car again. And the view was great. But you know what? The view... The accomplishment, the goal, was not the goal. The point of the day was the walk, the hike, the conversations, the way we encouraged and discouraged one another, the fact that we did it together. And that's sort of what I'm calling on here in this song, our willingness to not just be courageous and start something, although I do, I do call on us all, to find our courage and have faith in our own capacity to help change the world, one small, brave word at a time. But also, don't be afraid of the persistence. It can be daunting if you try to think of it as a, a binary thing. I did it, I didn't do it. Is it done yet? Are we there yet? But instead, as a journey, 
as a way of living your life that you can look back at and say, I, I did that. I was a part of what makes me proud. So with that note, I want to give you my song. Again, pardon the very simple accompaniment. I did just write it today. And I tried to keep it simple because that's what my cousin Bill asked me to do so he could learn to sing it if he wants. There's only three chords involved, and I'll put them all on the website if you want to figure it out for yourself. Face forward and forgive Gather in and let us live Healthy, wealthy, safe and sound Greening earth we gather round Judge and be judged my friend the perfect can't be the end gotta expect to err learn and prove and be fair get closer to where we can oh bring our all because we Gather in and let us live Healthy, wealthy, safe and sound Greening earth we gather round Try and be tried, my friend Daring that fails is not the end You gotta trust yourself you lead with your heart on your sleeve Solutions conceived when we all bring our all Because we care We care, we care We dare to be fair Hug as wide as a bear Trusting and trusted we fly Together we'll ride the sky Gather in, share the call Forgive our sins one and all Together start small and let us all Bring our all Because we Gather in and let us live Healthy, wealthy, safe and sound Greening earth we gather round Face forward and forgive Gather in and let us live Healthy, wealthy, safe and sound greening earth we gather round 
Not the most polished version of that song I might ever record, but a brand new song just for you. And that concludes our All Bring Our All edition of Something Different This Way Comes. From eagles to folk songs, and documentaries, and sorrows. I hope you had a good time. I was glad to have you with me. transcript, such as it is, and the lyrics and the chords, and all the links to all the things I talked about, please go to www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. And while you're there, please say hi. You can join the newsletter. You can donate to support the cost. You can check out what those costs are. And you just comment. Something different this way comes something. Something different, something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something.